Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your word you would give us wisdom. And specifically, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead and press on to your upward call in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to trust you, to walk with you, and to be faithful where you've put us. And we ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. This week, I was uh, talking with Matt about the uh, sermon text, and I told him I thought I was going to do Genesis 40 and 41, and he communicated back, um, you realize that's 80 verses, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> and, uh, and then he texts again to check Friday. He's like, you still planning to do Genesis 40 and 41? <laughs> yep. Uh, and then this morning during Sunday school, uh, we revi- I revised it back. So um, the readings, the, 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 uh, the Old and New Testament readings, uh, they would really fit well with next week's sermon. Uh, but uh, today we're just going to look at Genesis chapter 40 together. So I would invite you to turn there with me to Genesis 40. And while you're turning, um, I want to give you two statements that I just prayed that really I think are kind of the overarching application that is illustrated by what we see in the life of Jonah. Uh, Sorry, uh, the life of Joseph. So the first one is from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, the ESV renders it, but it's the word hesed, Uh, So other translations render it to love mercy, steadfast love, that's our word. He has told you, old man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And in, in this chapter, in Genesis 40, we'll see that that is what Joseph is faithfully doing. And then the other, the other statement that I would uh, put before us, and this one really picks up on some things uh, that we'll see in Genesis 41, particularly the naming of uh, Joseph's first son. You know, he names him Manasseh. And, and that name, Manasseh, uh, it, it's built off this Hebrew verb, Nasah. And that verb means to carry or to bear. And that word is used to describe the Lord bearing and thereby forgiving the sins of his people. And Joseph says, when he names Manasseh, he says, the Lord has made me forget all the trouble of my father's house. And and so the Lord has enabled him to forget. And I think there are connotations also of forgiveness there. So Joseph, we'll see in this chapter, in chapter 40, Joseph is at peace with the world because I think he has experienced forgiveness and the Lord has enabled him to forgive, even though justice has not yet been done upon his brothers for what they did to him. But all of these considerations lead me to read to you 
what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, again, because this is what Joseph is doing in the midst of his affliction. He says, not that I, Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. The pressing on involves the forgetting of what's behind and the straining toward what is ahead. That's what Joseph is doing. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. So to pick up where we left off in Genesis 40, we last saw Joseph had been rewarded uh, for his faithfulness in resisting, resisting the temptation offered by Potiphar's wife by being thrown into prison. You'll remember he was falsely accused. The accusation was not challenged by Potiphar. And because of Joseph's uh, purity and faithfulness to the Lord, he wound up in prison. So he's been sold into slavery. And now he's pro in what is probably a filthy, smelly, dirty hole. And, and, and the Hebrew renders this place the house of roundness. I mean, it, it almost evokes an image of a building that is constructed as a big circle, a big round circle, and they just put all those prisoners in there together. And that's where Joseph is. But we also saw at the end of Genesis 39, in verse 23, that the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And this seems to have gone on for quite some time. We don't have, we don't have exact timestamps for all of these events, but let me just take you to a few of them that we have. We know that in Genesis 37 verse 2, Joseph was 17 years old. And, and then later in that chapter, he sold into slavery. And then we're going to be told in Genesis 41 verse 46 that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. So there's 13 years there, from 17 to 30. And then we're also told in 41.1, after two whole years. Okay, so that seems to indicate that the events of Genesis 40 take place two years prior to Joseph uh, being exalted into Pharaoh's service at the age of 30. So he's 28 in Genesis 40, it would seem. And that means that everything that we've seen to this point, him being carried down into Egypt as a slave, him prospering in Potiphar's household, and then Potiphar's wife uh, making her accusation against him, and him winding up in prison for an indefinite period of time. You look at 40 verse 1, sometime after this. We're not told exactly how long that took. But all those events develop between Joseph's age 17 and now 28. And I would just invite you to reflect on that for a moment. Last week, I suggested to you that Joseph was probably meditating upon the promises of God, on the way that God had revealed himself to Abraham. And I think probably he's been faithfully doing this now for 11 years as a slave and then as a prisoner. And, and if, if you're Joseph and you're thinking about what the Lord has revealed, and you know that God gave you these dreams, right, that his brothers would bow down before him, that the sun and the moon and the 12 stars would bow down before him, which would seem to indicate that the promises made to Abraham 
are going to be realized somehow through him. How are you responding after 11 years as a slave and then a prisoner? Are you, are you beginning to grow bitter or are you faithfully believing God made these promises to Abraham? God, God told Abraham, this is what I think Joseph is doing. I think Joseph is thinking, God told Abraham he would have a child and then Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac. And, and then Isaac gets married and it's 20 years before Jacob and Esau are born. And then Jacob had a long history before the Lord finally brought him back to the land of promise. So there seems to be a kind of pattern here of suffering before exaltation, before the realization of the promises. So if Joseph is reflecting on the promises and on the patterns that have already begun to develop in the book of Genesis, then I think he could probably look at his suffering and say, well, I got these promises. What did I think was going to happen? Isn't suffering what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had to endure for all of those years? What, what would I expect? Now, if you're not thinking about the promises and the patterns, I think you could begin to think something like this. Oh, nice dreams, Lord. Nice dreams. Nice brothers. This is great. Here I am, a prisoner. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through us? Yeah, looks really likely now. And if you're, if you're Jacob, again, and you're up in the land of promise, and your beloved son is, you, don't even, you think he's dead. Your, your sons came back with his glorious coat covered with blood, and you identified the coat and concluded that he was dead. If you're Jacob, have you lost faith? Or are you persisting in believing the reason I'm asking these questions is because I, I want to urge us all to take the long view. That's what I think Genesis is teaching us here. Don't look at immediate pieces of evidence and draw long-term conclusions about whether or not God is, God is going to keep his promises. We, we need to look at narratives like this and realize for 11 years, Joseph has been first enslaved and then imprisoned and he's faithfully waiting and because he's acting out of faith, in part because he's acting out of faith, good things begin to develop. So watch what happens here in Genesis 40. Look with me at verse 1 and following. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now Moses is not too terribly interested in the details of what they did. He just tells us they committed an offense. But a cupbearer, as many of you are probably aware, is someone who is overseeing what the king drinks. And the baker is going to be the person who's in charge of what the king eats. Okay? And the cupbearer's responsibility is to make sure the king doesn't die. We're not told what these guys do. But their job, the, the cupbearer's job, is to keep the king from getting poisoned, whether, whether by his food or his drink. Now, I'm just going to assume that Pharaoh, at whatever level he's capable of as an unbeliever at this point, is going to do justice. And later in the chapter, he's going to put the baker to death. And so I'm going to assume that the baker is guilty. And, and this would indicate that the baker 
was perhaps in on a plot on Pharaoh's life. The cupbearer is going to be exonerated and restored to his office. So I, I don't know what this looks like for the cupbearer and the baker to have committed an offense. Maybe the baker's trying to kill Pharaoh and the cupbearer is not in on it and yet nevertheless it gets past him. Maybe that's why Pharaoh is offended at the cupbearer and he eventually decides to forgive his error but to punish the conspirator on his life. Maybe something like that developed. We, we don't ultimately know. We're just told that they committed an offense and then we're told what happens uh, in the outworking. Verse 2. Understandably, if somebody's trying to kill him, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. And so now they're going to meet Joseph. What are they going to meet? Are they going to meet somebody who is whining? Are they going to meet somebody who is grousing about God and the outworking of his providence? Really what I'm asking, as I ask about what they're going to meet when they meet Joseph, is how you're going to decide to live. How are you going to decide to live when affliction comes into your life, when suffering comes into your life? How do you want to be known? How do you want to be experienced by the people that you encounter. We should, contemplate, we should contemplate these kinds of questions because I think we all want to be like Joseph, and that's a good thing. Joseph, in this, in this passage, is a prefiguring, foreshadowing type of the Lord Jesus who, yes, he was a man of sorrows, but I think he was also, we can see in the Gospels, characterized as a man of joy, a man who, the, the author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we are people who are called to rejoice always and in everything to give thanks. Even if, God forbid, we get uh, sold into slavery and then unjustly thrown into prison. The Bible, is, the Bible is talking about the kinds of things that happen in real life to real people. Look at what happens here. Verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. So let's just, let's just think about what's going on here. The captain of the guard, the overseer of the prison, now has two very high profile, very well connected, and previously very powerful prisoners in his keeping. These are, I mean, the, if, if you're the cupbearer to the king... If I'm the cupbearer to the king, I am only taking that job where I'm going to drink what the king drinks before he drinks it if I'm in charge of everybody that works in the palace and if I'm in charge of the entirety of the supply chain because I don't want to die. And Okay, if he gives me that authority, I'm going to make sure that I have the authority to hire and fire because I'm looking for trustworthy people who are going to keep me alive and the king alive, right? So this cupbearer is a man of massive influence. And the captain of the guard now has someone who's connected to everybody. And he's got to keep him under control. And who does he give him to? He gives him to Joseph. He gives him, because he doesn't want a prison break. 
He doesn't want all those, that cupbearer's powerful friends to decide that they're going to come spring him loose. And he doesn't want that cupbearer orchestrating and arranging an uprising among the prisoners, of which he's probably capable. He wants everything peaceful in the, prisoner, in the prison. And so the guy that he can trust, the guy that he can count on, the guy who's not over there grousing, whining, you know, complaining, the guy who's, who's useful, he's helpful, he's a blessing to everybody. That's the guy that he's going to put these guys in custody of. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. We don't, we're not told how long this, this developed. Verse 5, and one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Now, I think Moses is going out of his way to stress that this is a providential development that comes as a revelation from God. Both these guys have significant dreams on the same night. Just so happens that these guys have these dreams. And then with that, that aspect of divine sovereignty, where God is providentially overseeing, guiding, governing, controlling everything that happens, down to the dreams of these two officials of the king of Egypt. With that comes Joseph's human responsibility. Because look what, look what we read next here in verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Do you know what you see here? You see here that Joseph is not a man who is self-consumed. Joseph is not a man who is just eaten up with his own feelings and his own sorrows and his own troubles. Joseph is a man who notices when those under his charge have had a bad dream or a disturbing dream, a dream that troubles them, that they don't know what to do with. Joseph is looking at other people. And, and again, you know, if you, if, you, if you sort of think about the, the, the grand sweep of Genesis and we think about Joseph who's received these, these, these promises that have been handed down from Isaac, Abraham to Isaac now to Jacob, and now Joseph has heard these promises. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and uh, you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now Joseph is in prison, and what he's doing is not urgently looking for a way to become Lord of all Egypt, or to somehow get out of prison and go back to the land of promise so that he can see that the promises are realized. No, Joseph is being faithful to do what the Lord has put in front of him in the house of roundness, in the prison. Joseph is in prison. He's being faithful in prison. Do you see what I'm saying? Joseph is not concerned with those things out there that are beyond his control. Joseph is concerned with these things right here that are under his influence. That's what he's giving himself to. And Joseph understands that, yes, God has given these, these far-reaching promises 
that ultimately concerned the salvation of the whole world. And the way that he's to go about being faithful to pursue the realization of those promises is to be faithful right here, right now, in the prison. That's how he goes about it. I say this because I know that, I know that sometimes people feel like if they're not on the mission field or if they're not in a direct evangelistic conversation or if they're not doing this or that that they think is somehow going to bring about God's promises, they think, well, I'm not doing anything. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. If you're being faithful where the Lord has put you, if you're loving the people around you, if you're looking to, to, to be conscious of the promises, to live in accordance with the promises, and to do what's been given you to do, you never know how the Lord is going to use this. If we had said to Joseph, Joseph, do you think that maybe some prisoners under your charge are going to have dreams that you're going to be able to interpret? I think he would look at us like, what are you talking about? How... How is that ever going to be connected to the outworking of God's promises? And then if, if we were to say, well, actually, these guys are going to have these dreams, and then two years are going to go by, and everybody's going to think that the cupbearer that you helped out has totally forgotten about you until just the right moment when Pharaoh has a dream. And then you're going to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Again, I think he would say, that's the craziest set of circumstances. I, I would never expect anything like that to happen. But that's what's going to happen. And through those events, which seem totally unpredictable, totally disconnected from the promises of God, through those events, Joseph is going to wind up blessing the whole world. Which leads me to say that life is a lot like a mystery. Life is a lot like a, 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 a detective novel that we don't know the solution to. But there's an author of this mystery. And he's putting together all of these seemingly random details. And, and at the end of all things, there's going to be the great reveal when we learn how all these details that we thought were random and disconnected were actually perfectly placed by the author to bring about the story that he's writing. So Joseph is being faithful where he is. I, I submit to you, that Joseph is living in accordance with Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you, O oh man, but to do justly? J Joseph is doing justice in the prison. We're about to see him, I think, do justice in the prison. And he's walking humbly, and he's loving kindness. And he's also, I think, clearly, forgetting what's behind. Joseph is not mourning the past. He's not griping about his brothers. He's not raising complaints about about uh, the wife of, of Potiphar. He's not, he's not crying out for this injustice that he's in prison to be resolved right now. This has got to be, I need, an, I need a new trial. No, he's, he's doing what the Lord has given him to do. So these guys have this dream. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. He saw that they were troubled. So much ministry can happen if we just see. We, need to, we, we want to cultivate observant eyes, eyes that are open, ears that are open, so that we see, and, and we want to cultivate understanding. He saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one 
to interpret them. This same thing is going to happen in the next chapter. Pharaoh's going to have dreams. There's going to be no one to interpret them. And, and all through this, there are all these, these sets of twos uh, in chapter 40, and it almost uh, sets up a, a scenario where the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker and the dreams of Pharaoh become another set of two. So here in this chapter, we have two officials. We're going to have two dreams. Each is going to have its own interpretation. So there's two interpretations. There are going to be two different outcomes. One of them is going to be restored. The other is going to be put to death. And then in 41.1, after two whole years, so there's another set of two, and then Pharaoh in chapter 41 is going to have two dreams. So these, these pairs really tie this whole uh, two-chapter set together. They said, we have had dreams, verse 8, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph knows where the revelation is going to come from. The, the, in, a, in a way, the revelation has been made to the cupbearer and the baker, and now it needs to be interpreted, and Joseph knows that the interpretation belongs to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Now, this guy is essentially describing himself doing what he had done as Pharaoh's cupbearer. He would no doubt oversee the production of the grapes, oversee the processing of the grapes, and then oversee the, the cup being brought to Pharaoh, and then the cup being drank by Pharaoh. All that was under his authority because Pharaoh doesn't want to die when he drinks poison. And so the cupbearer is to be over all of these things. And, and he has this dream, and he's doing this. And, and, and so what's the interpretation? Well, Joseph now gives him the interpretation in verse 12. Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Now, you know, it, you, you look at what the guy dreamed, and I think you can see him doing what he was doing as Pharaoh's cupbearer. You look at the three branches, I don't think there's any way to get from three branches to three days. Uh, so, so I think this is just prophetic revelation that is given to Joseph. The three branches are three days, verse 13. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And again, I, I don't think there's any necessary information in the dream that, would, that we could look at and say, okay, yeah, he dreamed something that, that would clearly indicate that there would be three days and then he would be restored. No, I think Joseph is prophetically interpreting this. And, and he's getting... He's getting uh, the interpretation that belongs to God, back up in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God, and he's revealing this to the cupbearer. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Okay, so he, he interprets the dream, and now he's going to follow the interpretation of the dream with a request. So, a moment ago, I said, we don't see Joseph complaining 
about the injustice. We don't see him consumed with it. That doesn't mean he's not concerned with it. That doesn't mean he's not trying to get it fixed, okay? He's just not eaten up with it so that it controls everything about his life and keeps him from seeing things that are happening around him. He is concerned about it. So look what he says in verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness, that's hesed, show me steadfast love to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. And then look at the way that Joseph words verse 15. He, look at what he, what he says and what he doesn't say. He says in verse 15, For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Now you notice what he doesn't say. My scoundrel, no good, jealous brothers sold me into slavery. They, they committed the sin of man stealing and then they sold me to slavers. He doesn't indict them. He, it seems... It seems that though he wants to insist, this was wrong. I was stolen. And, and man-stealing is forbidden. You look at Exodus chapter 21, and a man-stealer is to be put to death. Man-stealing is forbidden. Injustice happened. It's wrong. should be righted. But it doesn't seem that Joseph is bitter. It doesn't seem that he's angry. And if we ask ourselves, where does that come from? Where does the ability to be wronged and be able to forgive. Where does that come from? And, and I think the clearest statement in the passage, in, in, in this whole thing that it comes from, is in the naming of the Manasseh, of Manasseh, and that the verb Nasah and its connection to forgiveness. I think that's the clearest indication that, that we have in the passage that Joseph has experienced God's forgiveness and Joseph is ready to forgive his brothers, which is what he does in the outworking of the narrative. He forgives his brothers. But it seems to me that already here, the Lord has brought him to a place where he's, he has forgiven them. And he's able to forget what is behind. And he is trying to strain toward what is ahead and press on even as he's wrongly in prison. So... I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And then look at what he says next. And here also, I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And again, notice what he doesn't say. That, that harlot woman who's married to Potiphar made these false accusations against me. And she lied about me and she misrepresented me. And those, there's, those charges are... He doesn't, no. He, he's, again, he, he's insisting... I didn't do anything wrong. I don't deserve to be here. But he's not indicting. He's not in accusing. Even the people that are guilty, he's not accusing them. He seems to have come to a place where he's able to say, they meant it for evil. Already he seems to be able to say this, what he's going to say at the end. They meant it for evil. But I believe in a God who works these things for good. And I believe in a God and I trust a God who is somehow, I trust, I believe, even now, while I'm in, imprisoned, he's working this for good. He's using this for good. And that massive theological truth seems to have him able to say, when I talk about my being sold into slavery, I don't have to, I don't have to say even true things about my brothers. When I talk about myself being wrongfully imprisoned, 
I don't have to say even true things about the woman who falsely accused me and landed me in this hole. So he, he focuses on the injustice, but there's no bitterness, there's no recrimination, there, there's not even accusation of the people who perpetrated it. They're guilty. But it's like he can, it's like he can say, the Lord said, vengeance is mine. I mean, the Lord hasn't even said this yet, but it's like Joseph knows it. Knows it. The Lord said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it's like Joseph knows that, and he can live on it. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable. Now, uh, to bring in information that we know is going to happen, this chief, chief baker, he's going to be put to death. And, and that colors my interpretation of him. I think he's probably a scoundrel. I think he's probably guilty. I suspect that Joseph can probably tell. That cupbearer looks like a trustworthy, honorable man. That baker, he looks like the kind of guy that might actually be trying to kill the king. And, and I think this is also, perhaps, borne out in the fact that the cupbearer is ready to say, hey, I had this dream, and here, here it is. I'd love to hear your interpretation of it. The baker, meanwhile, is like, I'm not telling him my dream until I hear how he's going to interpret the other one. And now that he gets a favorable interpretation of the first one, he's like, okay, maybe I can work this to my advantage. Now that I've heard a favorable interpretation, I'll tell you my dream too. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was, was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets in my head. Notice how there's another set of three. And just as the cupbearer's branches were related to grapes, which were related to his calling, so also the baker has a set of three that are baskets that are related to his calling. Verse 17, in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Notice that whereas the cupbearer was putting the cup in Pharaoh's hand, uh, the baker, he's, he's apparently produced this food for Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's not eating it. It's not being delivered to Pharaoh. And, and again, you know, there are certain aspects of this that we can look at and we can interpret like this, but then there are other aspects of it that we look at and we say, only way Joseph knows what he tells the baker is because God revealed it to him. So verse 16 Joseph answered and said, this is his interpretation. The three baskets are three days, which we've seen this before, but again, there's no inherent connection. There's no, there's no inherent symbolism that somehow uh, baskets are about days. So if you've got three baskets, no, this is, that's not what we're being taught here, and, and we're not being taught to read the rest of the Bible that way. No, this is revelation. This is prophetic revelation from God. The three baskets are three days, verse 19. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Notice how he said the same thing to the baker that he said to the cupbearer in verse 13. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. But here he says, from you. So the cupbearer or the baker is hearing something that sounds like, so maybe he gets excited. Oh, he's going to lift up my head too. Oh, from you, as in remove it and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Maybe that makes you think like it does me of this statement in Proverbs where we read in Proverbs 30 verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother 
will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. I mean, it's describing a scene where someone has been executed, someone who did not honor father and mother. And it's not saying, Proverbs 30 verse 17 is not saying, you dishonor your mom and dad, you're going to get executed, and the carrion birds are going to eat your flesh. It is saying there's a way of life that starts with dishonoring parents. And then that just begins to spread all through life. And you don't honor your parents, and you don't honor your boss, and you don't honor the king, and ultimately you don't honor God. And there's an end that will happen to such people. They will find themselves dead in the open and the carrion birds devouring their flesh. That's where that path goes. And, and so Proverbs 30 verse 17 is urging, honor your father and mother so that you don't get on that path. That's the path the baker is on. That's why the birds are eating out of the baskets on his head. And then when his body is, is suspended, the birds will eat his flesh. God is a God of justice. Vengeance belongs to him. He will repay. Verse 20, this is remarkable. Really, really, this, this section of this chapter is, is what ultimately compelled me to say, I can't, I can't rush through this. I can't try to do 40 and 41. I mean, I read, I read this during Sunday school. I've been reading this all week. And during Sunday school this morning, these verses blew my mind. Okay, so verse 20. On the third day. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't think that Moses necessarily, it could be the case, but I don't think that Moses necessarily knows one day the Messiah that we're looking for is going to be crucified with two other criminals so that you got three criminals. And on the third day, one of them enters his reward and one of them is punished forever. And the other, who's the real center of the story, is also put in position ultimately to reign one day. I don't think Moses knows all that, but I do think that the divine author, the Holy Spirit, is guiding Moses so that by this point he knows third days are significant. And one of the reasons he knows this is because uh, Abraham lifted up his eyes on the third day on Mount Moriah. And, and by the time that Moses is putting the finishing touches on the whole of the Torah, he knows that on the third day Israel met the Lord at Mount Sinai and entered into covenant with him. So I think Moses knows that third days are significant, and I think that Moses wants to note significant things that happen on third days. So here in verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, which I don't think Joseph, it doesn't seem that Moses wants to indicate that Joseph knew about that. But these guys have had these dreams, and it just so happens that on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, and you know, there are these indications that on celebratory days like this, whether it's his actual day of birth or maybe the day that he became king over Egypt and they count then that as the day he was born, whatever, that they release prisoners on that day. Um, so it just so happens that they've dreamed three days before that. He made a feast for all his servants, which is another just really interesting detail because it's at the feast of Passover when Christ is raised from the dead on the third day. So Pharaoh's making this feast 
for all his servants, he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So just to be clear about the connection, I'm, I'm proposing that the Holy Spirit, the divine author, has built into this. I think this is like Jesus saying to that criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. And, and, and that guy who's being crucified with Christ, he's, he's rewarded. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Verse 22, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. You know, it's just a curious detail in the passage that on the, on the one hand, uh, Joseph tells him he's going to lift up your head from upon you. He's going to take your head off, and then he's going to hang you on a tree. Well, he's already dead. Why is he hanging him on a tree? Well, one thing, that's a shameful exposure of his dead body. And it functions as a warning. Don't anybody mess with Pharaoh. Don't anybody try to poison. This is what happens to people that try to poison the Pharaoh. But I think in God's sovereign providence, it also sets up a, a parallel between the way this guy dies and the way Christ and those two criminals die. He hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So uh, Joseph's exaltation is going to await future developments. And, and, you know, there's a loose correspondence here, I think, between the way that, yes, Christ is raised from the dead, but he, we do not yet see him uh, exalted over all the world like he will one day be. Again, I'm not saying that Moses understood all this, that Moses knew all this. I do think that Moses saw these details and thought there was something significant about them. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was guided to present this passage in such a way that, that there are these curious points of contact between what happens on the third day with Joseph and these two criminals and what happens at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. How do we respond to this passage? Well, in all kinds of ways in this passage, God is at work to bring about the realization of his promises. In, in ways that, that go, go beyond what Moses is able to record here in chapter 40. Moses can't tell us everything that God is doing that's, that's part of his outworking purposes in this one chapter. Some of it is developed in the next chapter and in the next and in the next it takes the whole story to tell the story, the whole, the whole of, of Genesis 37 to 50 to develop the narrative. And the same thing is true of our lives. I can't tell you everything that God is doing in your life right now. And if I tried to, I'm not a prophet. If I tried to do it, I'd be a fool. But we can believe that God is at work and we can trust his providence, and we can learn from Joseph how to respond to afflictions, to things that we would prefer not develop in our lives. You know, if we, if we had asked Joseph, do you want to be sold as a slave by your brothers? Probably not. Do you want to be imprisoned unjustly? No, nobody wants that to happen. But we can learn from Joseph how to respond to these kinds of things. We can learn from Joseph that the Lord has shown us what is good and what he desires from us, that we do justice, that we love mercy, 
and that we walk humbly with our God as we forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead, pressing on, in Joseph's case, to the outworking of the promises of God that it is clear are going to be realized through him. In our case as believers, to the, to the obedience to the Lord Jesus that the Lord has called us to, live faithfully where we are as we pursue the Great Commission in the context of this local body looking for the kingdom that God is surely going to bring. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, we hope that you will consider what God has done in Joseph's life. And we hope that you'll consider the way that the God of the Bible can take even horrible, tragic, devastating things that nobody wants to have had happen in their lives and work those things for good. And we hope that you'll turn away from your rebellion against this God who, who is so powerful and so wise and so good. And we hope that you'll be reconciled to this God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause us to know you and to fear you. And we pray, Lord, that our fear of you would be such that we don't jump to conclusions about how you're not at work or about how prayer doesn't work or about how you're not keeping your promises that you've made. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to respect that, that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and that with you a thousand years are as one day. And so, Lord, we pray that we would both fear you and trust you, and that this would bear fruit in our lives as we seek to be faithful where you've placed us, as we seek to bloom where we're planted, as we seek to love people because we trust that you're at work. And then, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to recognize when you have worked in surprising, unaccountable, miraculous ways. Help us to rejoice in you, to give thanks for Christ's sake. Amen.